Welcome to the 3D Parent Podcast. My name is Bevan Walters, your host and founder of The 3D Parent. I'm a certified parent coach and have spent the last decade living my calling in life, helping parents navigate the tough stuff like tantrums, sibling conflict, screen time overload, and managing the transition into the teenage years. My purpose is to provide you with the tools you need as a parent to lead with dignity, direction, and deep connection in your family relationships. My goal in creating the 3D Parent Podcast is to inform, empower, and increase confidence in parents so they can trust their instincts and make the best decisions possible for their families. For these reasons, I've rated this podcast FPEO for parents' ears only. Parenting is challenging, but you don't have to do it alone. Hello, and welcome back to the 3D Parent Podcast. Today, we're going to listen in on a live parent coach session where I'll work with a parent on a particular parenting challenge. Together, we will learn the history of the issue, identify the root causes, and problem-solve solutions. As always, I'll make suggestions with a 3D parent approach in mind, which encourages parents to parent with dignity, direction, and deep connection. So let's get started. Welcome, Elizabeth. Hi, thank you. Yep. Uh, I'd love to hear uh, just a little bit of background about you and your family, your family members, your child and your child's age. And also, what does your family love to do to connect with each other? Hi. Okay. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I have one son. Andy and I have been married for 12 years. And we live in a small suburban community in Louisiana. We moved here about two years ago. However, we're both kind of from Louisiana, so there's a lot of connections here. We really enjoy connecting with one another, doing activities like bike riding and reading together. We do a lot of cooking in Louisiana, so (laughs) that's another activity that comes into play a lot. There is a lot of social gatherings and activities, and so that's, that's kind of what we do. That's great. Um, I've never been to that part of the country. I'm up in <laughs> Seattle, um, but I have a lot of interest in exploring the South. And um, it's so interesting. Our country is so large that it really yes. feels like a different culture, a different country altogether, just going to a different part. So definitely want to explore more in the future. My oldest is um, going to be starting to look at colleges and um, in the next year. And I'm really looking forward to kind of exploring a little bit more of the United States and where she might be interested in going to school and definitely have the South on the radar. Oh, really? Oh, that's fun. So great. So let's go ahead and dive in to the challenge that you wanted to hash out with me today. Just go ahead and start off by sharing specifically about this issue kind of more generally and um, also a little history. How long has this been a problem for you and your family, if it's more recent or it's been ongoing? And also any specific examples of when you've seen this problem crop up? So let's hear about it. So we have been having several social occasions, several events happening. Um, It's probably been going on for the past two, maybe two and a half years. Like I said, my son is six and a half years old. And anytime we're in a social gathering, social setting, he goes into kind of hyperdrive. My son on a regular basis, I wouldn't consider a hyper child. He can sit and play with Hot Wheel cars on the floor for 30 minutes. He lines up his toys. And so this is outside of his regular behavior. I am a parent who does discipline um, in the sense that 
if I see him doing something wrong, he's corrected. And in those social settings and those social gatherings, he, it's like he just has this blank stare. He's looking around at everything else. He's squirming, wiggling, trying to get away from us. And it leads to frustration um, on both parts because now he's not having any fun because we're butting into his fun. I'm super frustrated or my husband who, you know, I've been the, the social person with him for years. And now that he's older and he's a boy, my husband's more involved in some of the social activities. And so he's seeing it now firsthand. Whereas when he was three, as a stay-at-home parent, I'm sorry, I should have mentioned that earlier. I am a stay-at-home parent <laughs> and my husband works outside the home and he didn't see those interactions. Um, so now he's getting frustrated. So it's not just, I kind of feel a little bit vindicated because it's not just me he's ignoring. Now he's ignoring my husband, which is not normally the case. So you're, you're um, mentioning like social gatherings is when you really mm-hmm. see this kind of happen. So when you've taken him out and about just the two of you are going to go to, um, let's say, a museum or a um, class that he's taking, or um, the two of you are going to go take a walk or go to the park. You don't seem to have the same struggle. It seems to be more when he is in a social environment, like at a party or a social gathering. Is that typically when you're seeing this? Correct. And I, I love going with him alone places because he doesn't act like that. Um, he does act like it though, when I'm alone with him at the school, if we get to eat lunch together, I'm the last thing he looks at. And he basically never talks to me because there's so much activity going around him. But no, for instance, I took him on a, on a mommy date on last Sunday and we had lunch together and we had such a good time and we, he engaged, he was focused. Um, so it does, it does seem to be more social gatherings rather than one-on-one interaction. Okay. And what does this behavior usually look like when he is, you know, hyperdrive out of control? Is he, um, being super hyper with the kids? Is he just bouncing off the walls kind of like disorganized or is it, is it more like, like playing with peers, getting out of control with peers, interacting, trying to get peers attention? What does it usually look like? That's a really good question because um, I don't know if it's trying to get peers' attention. I would imagine it's part part of both. So he's not behaviorally doing bad things. He's not going around smacking people or breaking things. He's just running when he shouldn't be. He may join into a particular activity that normally I would say not no to. He won't eat. He won't sit down. So for instance, um, if I can go into like an example. Yeah, please do. Okay. We were at a Super Bowl party and there weren't many kids there, but there were a few and he refused to sit down. The other kids were sitting down at the bar. The parents were at the table. We were eating. This was dinner. We warned him several times that this was dinner and up he goes, up he goes. And it's just, we can't keep sit down because that's annoying. That's annoying Mm -hmm. to everyone around us. And in the past, we would have either taken him away, kicking and screaming, or none of the solutions have ever worked. Tell me some of the solutions. Tell me some of the solutions you've tried in those instances so far, even though they haven't worked. It's good to kind of just know where you've been so far and what you've tried so far as far as solutions. Anything from like you've already mentioned, just correcting, stop doing that, sit down. What other? Has it ever escalated to warnings to... um, Yes to threats, to punishments, to consequences. Tell me what you've done. We have said we've done 
we've done threats, we've done consequences. When, when he got home, nothing seems to change the behavior next time. We've even gone as far as saying, this is what's happening today. We you know, expect you to listen to mommy and daddy when we're in this big crowd. And it doesn't, it's like, he just, it's totally forgotten by the time we get there. <laughs> and so you, you know, back to, go ahead. ahead. Back to what the behavior kind of looks like. It's basically kind of like, I've gotten down to his level, try to talk to him and he's spaced out or he's looking around. He's, he will cut me off. I won't be able to finish a sentence and getting up and down from places, running around when he's not supposed to be, just general not paying attention to us. Got it. Um, and then you mentioned social gatherings like the Super Bowl party. Have you seen this in other instances outside of social party gatherings? Um, you, I think you mentioned at school, eating lunch with him. Um, what does it look like there in a different type of, it's not a party environment. I don't know, sometimes uh, young early childhood classrooms can be like full of a lot of free time, play time, a lot of stimulus. So maybe it does have like kind of more of that playful feeling or maybe, um, or maybe not. So tell me other, like when you've seen it happen, when you've been at the school, what does it look like there? It actually happened to me yesterday. So it was pretty good timing for this because um, I volunteer a lot at the school and it's becoming kind of an issue. When I step into the classroom, the teacher says his sillies factor rises where he's generally not that is gregarious the right word? I don't know. Um, silly is more the right word. Yeah. I asked him, he asked, he will ask to do things that he normally, that I, he knows that I will say no to. He asked to be right next to me. I'm sitting at the teacher's desk. Yesterday I was sitting at the desk. I got up to go do something. He immediately ran over and sat in the teacher's chair and I asked him to get up. He wouldn't get up. And then I, I bent over to get something. He smacked me in the butt with a book. And oh my gosh. <laughs> Talk about triggering mom. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> but, you know, so it's just those instances where I can't pull him out of the classroom because I have to watch the other 19, 20 children in the class or we're at a social gathering and it will just, it, it ruins our time and his time. If we, we have warned him, and I will say this is probably a mistake we've made, is that we have said, if you do that again, we will leave. He does it again. And my husband and I aren't on board about leaving. You don't want to actually follow through with the threat. <laughs> right, right. When he was two and we threatened him in Target, I left the basket and we left the, but it's easy to do when I'm in charge and no one else is around. It's harder to do when you're at a social gathering. So I know I shouldn't be making empty threats, but that's been an issue. I, I will admit to that for sure. Okay, great. Um, so any other examples of when you've seen this or do you think you kind of covered the primary examples that would kind of help shed a light on what this looks like? I think that I have gone through a lot of the examples, you know, just basically squirming, eating, talking incessantly, not allowing us to talk to him at all. Even if we are changing the activity, so it's got nothing to do with his behavior. Even if we're going to do something else, there's always like a like whining and not allowing us to explain ourselves. He talks over us. Just a general overstimulation, right. I feel like. So um, I think I'm I, like, you've given a really good indication of what this looks like. And I want to okay. show you that this is a pretty common uh, challenge that parents face. Uh, that's kind of why I asked the question about, is this something you struggle with day-to-day, one-on-one? And it's really helpful to hear 
the answer that no, one-on-one, he's great. One-on-one, he follows the lead. One-on-one, we have like a really good flow and he's not out of control because that really kind of helps us identify or take a look at what might be the cause. What might be the cause of this unique energy that comes into play in these certain situations? There's kind of a hard and fast rule when it comes to parents and uh, and children and the dynamic there that kids instinctively want to follow, obey, listen to those to whom they feel connected to and attached to in a given moment. So in a given moment, when you, the two of you, he's connected, he's attached, he's going to follow, he's going to obey. He has an instinct to want to be good for you when it's the two of you together, one-on-one, or maybe even three-on-one when it's you and your husband and your son. He has an instinct to, he doesn't want to resist all the time. And some kids don't have that. Some kids, even when it's one-on-one, the kids are out of control and you see all these crazy behaviors happening, even one-on-one, which would indicate maybe there's something else going on. But in your example, it seems like one-on-one, he feels connected. He feels attached. He feels like he wants to follow and obey. Most, I mean, I'm sure he's a regular kid and sometimes that's not the case, but more often than not, that's not an ongoing struggle. So then it kind of leads us to say, okay, so when you're in these social environments, when he's around his peers at school, who is he having that instinct to want to be good for you and listen and obey there? Well, right now it's no, or not often, or usually that's not the case. So in those moments, if we understand the rule that kids instinctively want to, um, you know, kind of follow, obey, be good to, be liked by those whom they feel attached and who has their attention that moment, when you're in these social, um, social events or at school, if it's not you, who is he wanting to connect to in those moments when he's being kind of outrageous with his behavior? Who would you say? Probably most likely his friends, his peers, peers. I totally agree with that. And when I'm listening to the story, when I'm listening to your examples, that's the conclusion that I am coming to. That this to me sounds like in those moments, in those instances, he is not naturally following your lead. He's instead kind of like more focused on the attention of his peers. And it may not be directly kind of like interacting with the peers. In some cases, like when your example you gave of him jumping into the teacher's seat, that sounds a little bit like class clown, right? Like I'm gonna do something really funny and outrageous and out of line, hoping maybe a kid will notice and think it's funny and I'll gain some like social clout with my peers. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't, but it seems to me that that's my guess, that was the motivation, smacking you on the behind completely outrageous. He knows that's wrong. He would never think of doing that at home. But in this instance, he's trying to seek the approval, I believe, of his peers. So he's going to do something like that because in that moment, they have a more hold over his instinct to kind of want to perform than he does for you. So there's a term for this, which um, there's a developmental psychologist, Dr. Gordon Newfeld. I refer to a lot on my podcast because I've done so much study through his institute. He calls this phenomenon peer orientation. So it's where in any given period of time, and it can be all the time or it can be situational, which it sounds like it is in your case, a child has an instinct to be more connected to seek the approval of their peers than to the adults who, um, to whom they're in their care. So it could be with a teacher, it could be the parents, it could be with certain babysitters, it could be whatever situation they are that they are more concerned about fitting in and connecting with their peers than they are to their parents or authority figures. And the reality is you can't serve two masters at the same time. You cannot (laughs) be beholden to the peers and the parents. And so in these moments, these situations, he's serving the peers instead of you. And that is so 
incredibly frustrating. Um, and like I said, also pretty common. Dr. Newfeld, I just referred to, he actually wrote an entire book on this topic alone, which I definitely encourage you to take a look at. It's called Hold On To Your Kids. He wrote it along with um, another author, Dr. Gabor Mate. And the whole entire book is based around peer orientation. And why would they spend all this time and effort to write a whole book? Well, obviously it's a pervasive problem in common. And he's pretty young, your son. You're at the very, very beginning. You're only seeing this in certain situations. And the good news right. is there are things you can do to reverse this dynamic that get harder to do if your kid gets older and becomes really, really rooted in peer orientation. It's still fixable, it's still things can be done, but you have to do more significant changes. The older the child is, the more deeply rooted they are in peer orientation than you would a younger child. So you're, it's great that you're identifying this so young so that you can kind of make some, some tweaks, some changes to some things you might be doing that maybe kind of fostering this dynamic and to make some kind of changing up some of the dynamics and things you're doing at home when you're faced with a specific challenge and also to avoid it in the future. So just a little bit more about, you know, this peer oriented child, you know, they're difficult to lead. It's difficult to get your foot in the door when something else has a hold of them. Like with your son, the examples that you gave, it indicates that in those moments, like I said, that the parent child connection isn't working in those moments. They've fallen out of orbit, out of orientation. Parents, when it's working, you know it, right? They would fall you off the edge of a cliff if you led them because they are right. so connected. And, and when it's not working, it's so frustrating to parents and we feel powerless. And that's often when we as parents will kind of like try and find something that does have power over them because we don't in that moment and we're clear. And so that's a lot of times and we'll kind of resort to threats punishments, find something that does have control over them because we don't. And so then sometimes that's when we go to those resorts to those tactics because we don't know what else to do. And if you don't know where this is coming from, we completely go there quite often. So other signs, and this may not be the case of your son, but other signs of peer orientation. Um, the obvious one is the kids rejecting adult authority when around their peers, being a class clown, trying to entertain and gain approval from peers. You're definitely seeing both of those for sure. Also uh, trying to gain approval and like kind of not even caring about the punishments or breaking the rules because seeking the approval of the peers is so important to them. Um, another thing you can see sometimes, and um, think about it when I mention this, sometimes you can see for a child who tends to be pretty peer-oriented, they are trying to act like their peers. They want to dress like their peers. They seem really focused on trying to mimicking peer behaviors, um, speaking like them, picking up some um, phrases that peers use that maybe you don't use. Is that something you've ever seen? Oh, yes. Now that has had a definite uptick. And I don't know if the age group or the school, but there's an uptick in how he behaves around certain children we have are in contact with. Definitely some language that, he, <laughs> that he's learning um, at school or jokes, things like that for sure. Okay. So yeah, we, you hadn't mentioned that yet. So I mentioned that as like, this is also what it looks like, but like, I think we're really hitting the nail on the head because it sounds yeah. like we're identifying that he's checking all the boxes. We're yes, exactly. <laughs> and again, the, the good news is, like I said, he's young. We can work with this. We're identifying where this is coming from so we can work with this. Okay. Um, but it's great to recognize what this is so we can address it 
in a way that's going to be helpful in getting them unstuck from this problem behavior. So why does this happen? So now we know to get, why did we get here? Why is your son becoming peer oriented in these situations that we need to recognize is it's kind of become a cultural norm. We almost expect this, that our kids are going to want to like act like their peers. Down the road when he gets a little older, we've kind of accepted as a culture that, oh, it's normal for kids to reject their parents and prefer their peers, particularly when we think about teenagers. We kind of just, oh gosh, I, I, I'm dreading the teenage years because my kid is going to hate me and just want to spend all their time with their friends. And we've come to accept that as normal. And while it may be common, it's not normal and it's not actually healthy. And it's actually not the way that nature intended kids to grow up. Peers don't grow up peers. Adults to whom kids are attached, that's who grow up children. So when kids become too peer attached, they kind of resist learning from us. Instead of being interested in what we have to share with them, what we, the influence we have over them, they reject that, they push it away, and they're just trying to connect peer to peer. And as we know, peer relationships are inherently problematic because they're volatile. You know, you might have a great friend one day and the next day you're left out, you're rejected. It's when kids become really peer oriented and peer attached, they are set up for a lot of heart and heartache. They need to be more attached to their parents and their caregivers than they are their peers because of the nature of, of their friends, not always being good friends to them, they need to be able to come to us and have our the strength of the attachment between parent and child be stronger than the attachment between um, peers so that we can help them when they're experiencing hardships with friends. That needs to be more important than their attachment to their peers. Um, we as parents, again, kind of a cultural norm, we really emphasize peer relationships. At very young ages, when children, um, you, you said you're a stay-at-home parent, but did your son um, do like a preschool or something before he went into elementary school? A lot of times we as parents, we really focus on making friends and trying to help connect our children to their peers at very young ages. I'm not saying that daycares and preschools are inherently bad, but we're kind of pointing our children to the wrong focus point. They're going to be interacting with peers anyway. We can just take that for granted. And I'm not saying that peers and peer relationships and friends are bad. Of course they're not. But where we should be focusing our child's attention is on the adults who are going to be caretaking them and helping nurture that relationship first and foremost, that helping nurture the relationship between your child and the teacher when they're not with you or nurturing your relationship with your child. That should have more focus and more importance than having lots of focus on peer relationships. A lot of parents go overboard with play dates. They're so eager for their children to fit in with their peers that every day is a play date. They've been with their peers all day long at school. Play dates are fine, but I would suggest not tons, not all the time, maybe just a couple a month versus every day, putting so much importance on fitting in, belonging, nurturing friendships, which actually is pointing your child right into where this problem is really kind of being nurtured. Um, that is, is that something so... you have lots of, lots of play dates, lots of focus on oh, friendships? Gosh, I mean, I'm having such a ginormous aha moment in the sense that, and no, that's, it's interesting that you say that because I was the strange one who didn't put their kid in to Mother's Day out at one and a half. I kept him until Till he was three, I was like, I don't want to send him. And look, it's a good choice for a lot of people. It just wasn't for me. I knew that time was very precious. I think, I think right. you followed an instinct, not thinking like, oh gosh, my child's going to be missing out on socializing with, with his peers no. at one and a half. Right. I agree. It's, it's not that it's a bad thing. It's just, you don't have to. It's not a requirement. 
Hey there, parents. Are you tired of feeling like your kids are in charge at home, negotiating, demanding, and generally calling all the shots? Well, then I have a free resource for you called 10 Steps to Get Back in Charge of Your Kids. Just click the link below to download your own copy. Let's get you back in the driver's seat. There is a lot of, I don't know if it happens all over the country, but yes, there is a huge emphasis on extracurricular activities in our area. Constantly, every single day, they're going to a different activity. And I've said no to be, and I should probably mention this, soccer is the one place where he is focused and he will listen to dad, who is the coach. So that's an interesting dynamic because it's still a social scenario, but he loves soccer mm-hmm. and he, but also I don't that, know why that's, that's um, different. In that example, he is focused more on the direction of his dad, who's coach, than he is his peers. Like that, in that circumstance, oh, okay. in that example, that dynamic is really working. And it probably is because he's learning something that's really important to him. There's this motivation to follow and listen and learn from the coach who is the, you know, more the expert than the peers. He wants to get good. He's driven. So he's really hyper-focused on the coach who happens to be his dad in that circumstance because he is driven to learn from that dynamic is working for him versus like, I'm going to go off, goof off. My main motivation right. is connecting and socializing. You might have another example to share where he might be in an obstacle activity where he's still kind of clowning around and, and connecting with his peers. And that's more the, the driving focus behind why he's participating in the act or what motivates him in that activity than actually something that actually he's interested in and driven to learn from a leader, like a coach or a teacher. Um, or parent in this instance. Um, so sense. another thing, so we're, we're kind of trying to dig down and figure out why this is happening for your particular son and also help other listeners think about their own children and think for them, it might, oh my gosh, hundred percent, we do play dates every single day. And for some people it might be like, oh, okay, I've always been really focused on trying to foster these relationships between my kids, not realizing that this could be backfiring me, on me in this way that I should be putting more of the focus on, um, the connection between me and my child. Another reason why um, kids can become peer attached might indicate that in certain moments, the attachment becomes insecure, or it might be that the child is experiencing too much separation from their primary caregiver or the person that is, you know, they're struggling with this the most. And when I said separation, I'm talking about real and perceived separation. So Real physical separation would be maybe um, a parent who's had to travel a lot from work and is not there or available. It might be um, long work days where the child is not getting a lot of time with that parent. It might be um, a period of parents going through of a lot of stress or marital problems or um, or illness where the, the parent is not just doesn't have a lot of resources and emotional ability to kind of provide for their child that emotional support. Maybe there's been uh, illness or hospitalization. They've been physically removed from the child or like I said perceived separation due to perhaps discipline methods that are being used and the discipline methods that I am referring to are ones that really have to do with sometimes using your the parental presence that relationship that you're allowed to be with me when you behave these ways and when you're not behaving right, you go to your room or you have a time out or you don't get to be around me. So discipline that is all about separation. Also um, along that, um, in addition to like those type of reality, like separation, you can't be around me, social isolation could also be 
um, discipline techniques that um, might feel very wounding to your child, threats, yelling, shaming, or forms of coercion where you're trying to like, if you behave this way, you're going to get this, or if you behave that way, I'm going to take this away. That can be creating a disconnect or a feeling of a sense of separation between parent and child. So on that front, did any of that resonate with you? Oh, yes. <laughs> I was a sitting the time out mm-hmm. and then not until later on did I read more research about time out. And it was very clear at a certain age, he was, time out was not working. And, but here's my question. I, I tend to separate so that I can regain my deep breath. I have to physically separate because I am such a vocal person you know, yelling is one thing that it's a continual struggle for me. So it's, and I will admit that to everyone in the country. <laughs> I just, you're not alone in that. You're not alone in that. I was raised by a yeller. Sorry, dad. But <laughs> it's very hard to um, get to that level of frustration and not be vocal. So right. I have to separate myself. So that's where, yes. Oh my gosh. What you're saying about separation could absolutely be be the issue. And also our tactics. If you do this, you'll get this reward. If you do this, you will be punished. So I I definitely can resonate. That definitely resonated with me for sure. Yeah. So again, like you're not alone in that, that this is like a lot of us, this is kind of how we were raised or it's what we know, or it's what we do when we feel desperate and we don't know there can be other ways or ways in which you can discipline that are um, not going to be like damaging or create a sense of separation between your child. And, you know, we do the best we can with the information we have in a given moment. And then we all have, like you said, our own kind of like shortcomings. Um, I'm short tempered myself. It's hard for me to resist the urge to yell or react or get triggered. That's something where I've had to do a lot of personal work to try and, uh, you know, keep myself calm. You know, you're choosing to separate to keep yourself calm. You know, that I guess in a way is better than you know, lashing out or screaming or yelling or something. But at the same time, it does have a consequence and it does feel like separation. Your child thinks, oh gosh, I'm too much to handle right now. And so they kind of put up some walls and some barriers that feel like separation. So that's an area, you know, I'm not a therapist, I'm a parent coach, but that's an area (laughs) where you could do a little bit more kind of, all right, let's thinking through how do I handle these moments when I'm getting really triggered in a way that's not going to foster more separation. And I would go into a lot of discipline Um, alternatives on my podcast. And I definitely want to recommend that you listen to episode four, which is all about discipline and other forms of discipline that you can go to. One of the key things I think be really helpful for you, Elizabeth, is recognizing that a lot of what you're doing in these instances is trying to control your child's behaviors. And that is in a lot of cases, what becomes so triggering and frustrating to us is because we cannot control the child's behaviors when they're out of control. And that's kind of like what becomes so frustrating. So I think if you shifted the way in which you're approaching those problems, you may not feel as triggered. You might feel a little bit more in control of um, your own, you know, things that sets you off personally by approaching discipline in a way that is not about trying to control your child's behaviors, but more trying to address what's causing the behaviors in the first place. So um, that could be really helpful for you in terms of like, okay, 
I just get triggered, I get mad when I'm trying to give directions or re, um, you know, I'm threatening and he's not listening and that sets me off. So doing some work in terms of trying some new discipline tactics will help. I'm gonna give you one specific one in a minute um, to address specific problem next time you're in a social event or something that could be helpful. Um, but a okay. lot more you'd be able to hear if you went back and listened to that episode. So like I said, we go to those tactics when we feel powerless and no parent wants to feel powerless. And that's again, probably a big trigger for you is when you feel like you don't have any other thing else to do but to yell or to threaten or to punish because like you're feeling powerless in those moments. A hundred percent of the power to correct, to corral your child's energy is that parent-child connection. So when your child is peer-oriented, you are powerless. You are rendered powerless. So how do you get your foot back in the door and get your child to start orienting to you again when something else has a hold over of them. So there's some things that you can do kind of like proactively to try and avoid this from happening in the future and to continue to work on this, improving this dynamic. And one of the things um, Dr. Newfeld I've referred to many times, he said, he has this phrase, don't court the competition. So the competition is the peers. So don't court the competition. Yes, occasional play dates are fine, but try to be more mindful about right now where he is in a stage of development, where you're seeing this peer orientation creeping up. I would say limit the amount of time he is spending with peers outside of time that is required, like his soccer practice, like school. Don't put a lot of focus or energy on time spent with peers right now while you're working on changing this dynamic. Another thing to work on is with your relationship with your son is to repair anything between you and your son that might need repairing. So that means on a day-to-day -day instance, if you, you know, lost it one day and yelled at your son, get in the habit of repairing. Take charge of making any repairs, anything you might've done that might've felt wounding to your, style, to your child, address it. And I've also done a whole episode on apologizing, but just to kind of throw it out there right now, um, that repair, that apology needs to be what I call a no buts apology. So it's not like, I'm sorry I yelled at you, but you weren't listening to me and that really made me mad. We leave that part of it off. It's 100%, it. I'm sorry I yelled at you, you didn't deserve to be yelled at. It's 100% just take responsibility. We don't put the blame on our child for us losing it. We're the mature ones here, right? Or we're supposed to be. Just sometimes we don't act mature and I'm guilty myself. So repair where needed. If there is an incident that's happened and you know you've lost it and you've done something that might've wounded the, um, your, your relationship with your child, repair it. And then reduce any separation where it can be avoided. So if it's the physical separation, if there are things that can be avoided, gosh, we've got a lot going on in our schedule right now. Let's go ahead and cancel a couple of these things that we've had and instead make it be family time, connection time. Okay. So think okay. about times when you can decrease separation right now, when it's, when it's, there's an option, when there's not an option, when he's got to go to school, you got to go to work, when there, you know, when there are things that cannot be avoided, you, you work to bridge that separation. So you find ways to stay connected on either side of that period of separation. You try to have a lot of warmth and connection in the morning, and then you kind of try and point your child to the next point you're going to be together. So let's say you are going out one night and um, he's being left with a babysitter. You would, you know, really make an effort before you're leaving to kind of connect with them, have some good um, connection time. And then, you know, in the morning, in the, I'm going to make your favorite breakfast, find ways to kind of help them feel connected through periods of separation that are unavoidable. Um, and then again, a, the other form that perceived separation, take a really good hard look at discipline techniques. And again, I encourage you to listen to that episode four um, of my podcast to get more ideas. 
Um, and then the other piece of this is continuing to develop that deep parent-child connection. It sounds like that's working for you a lot of the times one-on-one, but because you're seeing that kind of not working for you in these certain, certain circumstances, it does indicate that some more work could be done in terms of continuing to foster and deepen a deep connection with your child. And I've got a podcast episode for that too, which is episode three, developing a deep connection with your child. It sounds like you've already got a great connection and relationship going with your child. So it's more just being cognizant of that, um, that relationship and continuing to find ways to connect with your child as he continues to grow older. Um, so yeah, so looking at more ways to try and deepen that connection. So now let's I talk about, feel, oh, go, oh, ahead. go ahead. I, I do feel just in, in relation to connection, cause he's in first grade. It, it was a, it was a very huge transformation for us last year to go from being with each other almost all the time. And he, and it partly is because he's an only child and I'm fortunate enough to be able to stay home where I I feel that loss of connection. So you saying that, oh my gosh, almost brings me to tears because it's so difficult to do it in the morning when you need to go. And then I, then he's, he's full day of school and he's exhausted in the evening. Um, so you have less time uh, to work the connection. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So being really intentional with the time that you do have will make all the difference there because that is okay. a big transition when a child is used to having so much contact. And then that's also a developmental thing. Um, I talk about it on that episode about how, um, how the, uh, if everything's working um, within a child and there's not been some huge stressor or uh, like a big move, a new sibling or something that could be a real big stressor on a child, if things have been working pretty well, usually they get like fully deeply rooted in the connection between age five or six. So your son's just six and a half. And, you know, starting kindergarten last year and having that period of separation, it might have kind of caused a little bit of strain. That in itself could have been enough to kind of cause a little strain in that connection, um, which is not surprising. The good news is you can always address this. You could always continue to deepen and strengthen and repair an attachment, a connection that might have gone through a little bit of a rough patch where it might have not kind of gotten to that depth that you are hoping for it to be at this age and stage. And by learning more about how that, um, how you can be deepening that connection with your child and putting the effort and work in there, that will, like I said, that will get him to a point where when you're in these situations and there's competing attachments like the peers, if that strength and that connection is really deeply rooted, he would never imagine attaching to his peers over you. So that could be a really good place for you to put in some strong efforts, kind of rethinking some discipline tactics and also being really intentional with how you are um, continuing to foster that deep connection with your child. So now kind of thinking about uh, that specific incident, you know, this is going to take some time. Um, it's totally doable. And I bet if you're really intentional with how you're kind of addressing this, you're going to see some pretty quick turnaround in terms of this rerouting. But you're going to still be in situations in the next coming weeks and months where maybe this is not 100% kind of rerouted itself yet. And so I want to kind of give you some specific little techniques to try in those moments. So the first thing to ask yourself when your child seems to be, you know, spinning a little bit out of control in these social settings or in, around his peers, 
the first thing to ask yourself is, does my child have a desire to be good for me right now? Does, does my child have that instinct right now? And, you know, in these instances you described, no way. He totally does not have a desire <laughs> to be good for you in those moments. That's something that needs to be there and able to lead your child. So how do we get there? How do we get there in these instances where he does not have a desire to be good for you right now? How do we get there? A lot of times we do what you've done and it's so common. You go in there with trying to like, you know, force him, you know, you're addressing the behavior, you're trying to give him a talking to, you're trying to, you know, we're going to leave, you give a threat, all these things, you're basically trying to control him because you have no control. And like I said, the control is 100% in your parent-child connection and attachment. So when you don't have that working for you, how do we turn on that energy? How do we get a foot in the door so that your child is back to orienting to you instead of to his peers or this kind of like wild energy where he's like out of orbit from everybody? So what you basically have to do in those moments is you have to get his attention on you in a way that feels friendly, in a way that feels playful, not like mean mommy reading you like the right act. It is you coming in there and finding a way to interact with him in a way that feels like, oh, this looks like fun. You basically offer something better than currently has the attention. And so it might be, he's like kind of bouncing off the walls. You go downstairs to the playroom, let's say, and you see he's bouncing off the walls. How can you engage with him in play? Instead of right away going in and be like, oh, you're out of control. How can you be like, oh my gosh, you're having so much fun. What are you doing? This is awesome. And then you can kind of get his energy towards you. And then you can kind of try and get him to regulate his energy in a way that's more appropriate without even having to address the behavior just by you kind of like using your own attachment with him to kind of regulate his out of control emotions at, or behaviors in that moment. Um, you can sometimes, you've said that sometimes you try to get him just to even pay attention to like hunger. That's even offline during those moments because right. he's, his energy is so elsewhere. So maybe you kind of draw his attention, maybe offering him like the unthinkable, he needs to eat his dinner. Maybe you go down there and say like, Hey, there's cupcakes. I'm okay with you having a cupcake for dinner right now. Let's go eat. It's like you do the unthinkable sometimes to try and get that energy back towards you. It's like, I know usually we say dinner, you know, dinner comes first, but like, Hey, you know what? Let's break the rules tonight. Let's get a cupcake first. You're like, let's get his energy. You offer him something better. First thing, sit down and eat your salad right now. Like, no way. No way. Right. Right. <laughs> sometimes something that's like really above and beyond trying to get the energy. So going in and trying to connect with him through play or going in and trying to offer something that might be better. And for sure, your, your relationship with him is, we know, is stronger, is better, is deeper than his connection with his peers. It's just at certain moments right now that's going offline. So we have to offer sometimes. And then sometimes if he is not reroutable, if you cannot go in there and offer play, engage with him, try and get his eye contact. Um, again, Newfeld, who I keep on referring to, he calls it collect before direct. And he's referring to collecting eyes, a smile, and a nod. So you're trying to actually physically engage their child and try and get his eye contact. You want to get like a smile, like you're, you're, you know, you're interacting with each other in a way that's positive, maybe a nod of like, oh yeah, like, you know, that's cool. Yeah, let's go do that. You're trying to collect those things. Sometimes your kids are not collectible. Sometimes they're so far offline and so spinning out of orbit that you do have to do what you did when he was little and just leave the target. And notice I didn't say give him a warning that you're going to have to go and leave the party. You don't oh. give a warning. You go in and you say, this isn't working right now. We're going to leave. And it's not the same thing as a wow. punishment. You're okay. taking charge. You're recognizing that this isn't working and it's not shaming him. Oh my gosh, you're being so bad. We're going to leave the party. 
It's you're stepping in and taking charge. And this is the difference between being a really kind of like strict authoritarian parent who has really high expectations, is really commanding, yet does not have the empathy or give that emotional feedback. That's the difference between that kind of parent who's just like, you're in trouble, rules, punishment, but doesn't actually ever get to the root issue. And the parent that's more authoritative, it's confusing because those two terms, you may have heard them before in like parenting sure. in literature, they're so similar that you get mixed up a lot. So the authoritative parent is the parent that has very high standards, is very much consistent, has rules, has expectations, but at the same time is empathetic and responsive to a child's emotional needs. Because of the confusing language, I often refer to that type of parent as a nurturing alpha. So you're alpha, you're very much in control, you're very much in charge, you are the one that sets the rules, the limits, the expectations, you're consistent, you're not a pushover, you're not a parent letting your kid get away with whatever they want. You're very much the strong force, but you're also nurturing. You're also kind. You're also working the, d the deep connection with your child, not just the rules and because I said so energy. You're doing both at the same time. And that's kind of the direction I want to kind of encourage you to go in terms of discipline is you're not warning. You're not trying to coerce good behavior. When behavior is out of control and you cannot get him to reorient to you, you just take charge. And that's all that needs to happen. You don't now need to lump yet another punishment on top of um, this natural consequence was we had to leave the party that it took care of itself. And it doesn't mean your child's not going to be sad. That's okay. It's okay because that is like a natural response to feeling like, oh my gosh, I was having so much fun. Yeah, that wasn't working today. It wasn't working today. We're going to go do something else. And then what you're doing there is you're spending time with your child, reconnecting, you're reorienting. And rather than going home and saying, go your room, separation, separation, you go do something else that's connecting the two of you together. It can be pleasant. You know, he already had to kind of suffer the natural consequences of being out of control, but you don't have to point and stick his nose in it, right? You just okay. charge and he moved on. Later, you can go ahead and redress what happened and talk through it, but not to shame him, not to blame him, not to punish him, but just be like, yeah, I know it was a really big bummer. That's the empathetic side. It was a bummer to have to leave the party, but it wasn't working today. Things were out of control. You weren't eating. You we're getting kind of wild. And, you know, I tried to step in and it didn't work and that's okay. We'll try again another time. But it's another indication to you that, okay, we need a little bit more work still on this peer orientation problem. And that's work for you to do, not to expect him to behave a certain way. I think it's great that, uh, that you addressed that you, uh, sometimes when you um, have addressed this with him, that you have, I lost my train of thought, we're going to erase that little part of the podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, in terms of when you're going to be doing social events in the future, you know, if you're, you're going to venture into another party, I love the fact that you said that um, you talk through the expectations when you go to parties, that's great. But it's okay. not to ask him to perform, it's to kind of orient him that like, here is the way that, um, you know, we're going to a party right now and we're gonna do this and that, and this is okay to do, and this is not okay to do. And you're just basically scripting the behavior you wanna see come from him because he's young, he's impulsive, he's immature, and those social situations are hard for him. You know, it's a big ask to keep it together and just behave appropriately when he's around his peers that are for him really enticing in terms of this energy. So I think it's great that you talk through the expectations before you go there, but don't include, or else we're going to leave. Don't include those okay. threats just to kind of give him the, this is what it's going to look like. Here's what's okay. Here's what's not okay. You're just kind of letting him in on how you behave in these situations because he's young and impulsive because he's six and a half. You know, that's just part of the way it is. Another thing to think about in future social events is to 
maybe try to exit on a high note. Maybe don't stay the full length of a party. Maybe try to venture in those social situations, let them know ahead of time, oh, we can only stay for an hour today, but we're still gonna go to the party. And then try and continue to stay engaged with him. If he seems to fly off the handle real fast, I wouldn't spend a lot of time with him out of your sight. Not to watch him like a hawk, not to nitpick on him, but to stay engaged with him. I know that's kind of a bummer because you wanna enjoy the adult company, but this is where he is right now. This is not forever. This is where we are right now. And you wanna be building upon a successes than continuously coming up on these frustrating situations. So I would say um, in these situations in the future, maybe like the next time you go to a social situation, leave when things are still working as opposed to when things have gone downhill. So you can build upon those successes. And like I just said, keep an eye on him. If he is kind of out of your sight, check in on him. Again, not to be like scolding him or addressing, but really just to kind of get a litmus test on where he is in terms of his peer orientation. And if you can kind of interact with him and he engages you easily and you get those eyes and that smile from easily, he's doing okay. If he seems like he's flying off the handle, then you need to stay engaged so you can continue to direct him the direction you want to go. And then, like I said, rather than trying to control his behaviors and focus on that, which can be so triggering and frustrating and for sure is part of why you get so upset in those moments, like we did today, think what's causing this? What is at the root of this problem behavior? I think in this situation, we pretty much know what it is. And it has to do with him becoming too peer focused in these situations. But take a step back and try and address what is driving that. And then you don't need those punishments, those threats, those, um, those things that don't feel good instinctively. If you know the issue is that he's gotten out of orientation, out of orbit with you, that's what you address. Okay, I need to reinsert myself. I need to interact with him. I need to get his energy flowing back towards me again so that um, this can be successful. And if it's not working, then you know, exit, time to leave. So I hope that was helpful to you today and gave you some new things to think about. As I mentioned, um, I've got those podcasts. I think they're really helpful for you. And then there's also that book. And in my show notes, I will have links to episode three, episode four, as well as the book I mentioned, Hold On To Your Kids, as great resources to find out more. Um, I also will probably throw in a couple of great articles about this kind of phenomenon, this peer orientation that can be really helpful in terms of understanding how to address it in the future. Thank you so much, Elizabeth, for sharing your story with us today. Um, as I said, I know there are so many parents out there could, that can relate to what you described. And if any of you out there listening would like to be a guest on a future show and have a uh, parent coach episode with me like I did today, please feel free to contact me at the3dparent.com. Shoot me an email or a message. I'd love to have the opportunity to partner with you on your parenting journey. Thank you so much for tuning in this week to the 3D Parent Podcast. I hope it has provided you with the inspiration you need for building stronger relationships with your children and trusting your instincts when it comes to parenting. If you have a parenting question you'd like answered on the podcast, or if you'd like one-on-one -on -one parent coaching, head over to the3dparent.com and click the contact tab to send me your question. If today's discussion empowered your parenting, please be sure to subscribe to the show, leave a rating and a review. Also, I'd love to connect with you on social media. So take a screenshot, share it on your Instagram stories and tag me at the3dparent. I look forward to meeting you here again next week on the 3D Parent Podcast.